Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Have you seen anything? Yes, I took the family to Pete's Dragon, which was actually oh, really good. I've heard nothing but good things about that movie. Why was it so it's great? It's just, it it has a real sense of heart to it. It's got really, uh, it's got a great story, really touching characters. It's funny, it's tender, it's adventurous, it's just kind of hit all the buttons, uh, you know, and in a year where Disney already has done a live-action Jungle Book, it really kind of uh, surprised me that Pete's Dragon also ended up working so well. It's uh, it's very interesting to me, and it kind of gives me hope for future live-action Disney um, retreads, and uh, although I'm still a little skeptical on uh, the Dumbo that I think, is it Tim Burton doing Dumbo? Oh, good grief. Yeah, well, I'm not quite sure. But then again, I mean, these two really kind of uh, set a high bar. So maybe maybe it can. Uh, all yeah. right. What do you think of the actual the actual dragon? I mean, I, all I've seen is in the trailer. He's great. He's he's yeah, different he's from the Elliot in the animated version or the, you know, the, the live action version with the animated dragon. Definitely is a different <laughs> character design. But there's something about his design here that still makes him... Um, kind of just something that kids will be drawn to, a very soft and cuddly sort of dragon. And I liked it. I liked that he was kind of a furry dragon. It, it worked well for the context of the movie. That's awesome. I look forward to it. We, I, I could not take anybody to a movie because we brought my son home from camp and he was sick. Ah. Again, so we've got more illness in the family. So I, didn't, I saw nothing. You know what? Except for the movie we're talking about you today. You know what? Your, your daughter could probably bleed him. She could probably you know, draw out the, uh, the infection. I don't think, I don't medically. I don't think that's the term that you use anymore. <laughs> Doesn't it sound much like scarier it and does. more more dramatic? Get the, that's the, get the leeches, Dad. I hear that. Get the leeches, Dad. That's right. That's right. Oh, I look forward to that. Uh, we got uh, we have some follow up on uh, Children of Men. Yes. Uh, we got a fantastic email from friend of the show, Nick Langdon, who wrote in on his his opinion on, on Children of Men. And he loves this film. He actually included his rank. This Children of Men is one out of 958. His favorite film of all time. We need to, we need to respond to one point in particular. Uh, well, first of all, he says some just fantastic, uh, he has some fantastic insights. He, you know, one of the many things I love about this film, he says, is the highly realistic lived-in world it creates. Quaron's aim was for humanity to get up to about 2010 and then give up. Hence, the cars seemed a few years ahead for 2006, but then had just been patched up and maintained as no new models were released. Uh, the whole of Earth becoming like embargo-era Cuba. I love the way he frames that. Uh, then he says, as for your flick chart ranking, I find it slightly odd you, rightly, praised the long takes of this film and how they are not only technically dazzling, but also drew you into the story and the world, make you feel what the characters are, then promptly have it 
lose to one of the most over-edited, hacked-up films to somehow win plaudits for its editing, Inception, average shot length 3.1 seconds, versus Children of Men at 16.4. Christopher Nolan and his editor, Lee Smith, are committed to the most conservative, predictable, and literal type of cinema, where everything is shot reverse shot, and he never uses four cuts to cover the same thing when he could use 13. And then he he posts a link to another uh, piece on this specific point. Uh, do you, what do you think about that? I, um, you know, it's, I think this is one of those uh, issues of contention that some people have about filmmakers and how they put stuff together. I looked at that link that he, uh, he included. I read that article and I really just disagree. I mean, I understand what he's saying. And yes, uh, Christopher Nolan certainly used a good number of shots to cut some of those scenes together. Um, and yeah, sure, you can call it uh, just very kind of conservative, predictable, literal type of, of filmmaking. It's just, you know, very straightforward. But it's, it's you know, the way that that particular story is being told, and, and Christopher Nolan is telling that story. Um, it doesn't, it, not every film has to be another Jean-Luc Godard film. Um, you know, they don't all have to be told in a really artistic way. Quaron uses some really interesting techniques to tell his story, but that's the way that he tells his story. Every Everyone tells their stories in different ways. I mean, it's like complaining that, you know, Stephen King writes, you know, too straightforward in his prose. He's not enough T.S. Eliot or something. Um, I, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's just the different ways that different people tell their stories. It's different art. And yes, some people may work better um, with the medium uh, using the tools in one way, and they may want to try doing other things. I think Christopher Nolan does, does a lot of incredibly artistic things in his films, and that film in particular. I, I really enjoy the way he builds that world, and I really enjoy the way he uh, told that story. I, I mean, I really connected with it. I didn't find it over-edited. I found it worked very well for me. And I think that's just, I, you know, hearing that comment, I, I can see where you're coming from, but at the same time, I don't think it detracted uh, from Inception for me, and so that's again. I just really enjoyed Inception, and I guess that's why I picked it. I I do too, and I think for me, it's telling that both of these films would end up practically back to back with each other, Inception and and Children of Men, uh, on my own flick chart, and that's that says something to me that it's okay. I I find it okay to like both uh, styles, visual styles. This is his visual language, and I think uh, uh, Quaron has, as you so rightly say, I think he has a certain uh, voice that he uses, and uh, Nolan's voice tends to be much more frenetic, and that's okay too. Um, I deeply enjoy the story uh, of Inception, and I am absolutely wrapped up in it and lose sense of the visual style that he's using pretty quickly into it. I can just sort of lose myself in the in the story. Um, and so the rapid cutting doesn't, doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Uh, and yet, when I watch uh, Children of Men, the long cutting, his style actually uh, stays in that sort of awareness part of my brain. Uh, it actually adds to the story. And they're just two very different effects. Uh, that they have on me, and I think that's okay. Uh, I I actually don't. Uh, I, I I really 
don't have a problem with conservative, predictable, literal cinema. I really don't. I, I, I think it's okay to like all kinds of cinema, and, and uh, Inception gives me a great dopamine push. I'm okay celebrating that. And not to belabor this point, but aside from the shot economy, there's this other side of the economy. That's the financial economy of filmmaking. And when you're working on such a big scale like Nolan is with Inception, you know, you have a lot of money to make a movie like that, but... Uh, just because you have a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean that you can just kind of free wheel and do whatever it is you want. They have a very strict schedule and uh, they have to make sure they spend all that money wisely in context of making that uh, big film. And I'm just guessing, but they likely would not have been able to, um, with all the other stuff going on in the film, they likely would not have been able to take 14 days to plan a shot and, and really make sure that everything was working perfectly, uh, even if it was a six or seven minute long shot, uh, they would not have been able to take that time to do that um, in context of the entire movie they're making. In Children of Men, it ended up working for Quaron and his people, and as that was the film they were making. When he went on to make Gravity, that ended up working in context of that particular film. It's just, you know, there's there's a, a financial economy, and sometimes a filmmaker and the filmmaking team would be able to kind of build that into the budget and sometimes not. Thank you, Nick, for writing that in because I, you know, I haven't really thought um, a, a whole lot about uh, the comparison between those two films, and I think it's a good one to look at and really just uh, to to sort of drop into this conversation. That was um, um, well commented, so we appreciate that. Okay, I think we should tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey! And we spoil movies tonight in the show, the penultimate picture in our disease series with Fernando Mireas, 2008 film Blindness. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or join us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever turned into a sociopath just after an appointment with your ophthalmologist, then you've probably got The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge, right in your sights. And with that, let's steal a car from a blind man and drive on over to Games Master Steven Smart's pad to find out who won this week. Hey guys... This week's movie was Stay Hungry from 1976. Directed by Bob Raffleson and starring Jeff Bridges, Sally Field and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Congrats to at Fegfe who guessed it on Image One. You are entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks, guys, and see you later. Speaking of children of men, we do have a, a blot spot. The good uh, friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with his take on children of men. How'd we do? Yes, this was my third time watching Children of Men, and it's the first time I feel like I can say I kind of liked it. I've always struggled a lot with the overwhelming bleakness of the film, and even the conclusion doesn't feel very satisfying. But I must admit, the cast is great, and the cinematography is stellar. I just wish I connected more to the story. Your rank 16, my rank 63. You know, I feel like we did Ben a service there. I think we should uh, make sure he watches it again and again and again. Yeah, until, it's, <laughs> until it gets up at least into the top 15. There you go. I think that'd be good. <laughs> I I actually really appreciated this uh, this comment because it felt a lot like like my take on it, although for different reasons. Ben clearly watched the film critically two times and didn't like it. I apparently watched the film and maybe slept through it with my eyes open. 
before I actually <laughs> watched it again. So uh, thank you again. And lot the blot spot. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. <laughs> You got a handsome lad trailer this week. A handsome lad and a sexy lady. You know what the problem is with Brad Pitt? Is, is that, there a problem with Brad Pitt? Yes, of course there's a problem. It's that he started out handsome when when he was a young lad, you know? And he just gets more and more handsome. Now he's uh, uh, he's a good-looking man now. He's like he's just he just keeps getting handsomer. <laughs> Stupid Brad Pitt and all his handsomeness. Man, Ugh. even when he's dour, he's still handsome. Ain't that right. How does right. he pull that off? Ain't that right. You want to talk about your trailer? <laughs> sure. Sorry, I'm stuck on handsome Brad. <laughs> <laughs> so my my trailer, which is really a teaser, um, but I opted to go with it just because it got me so excited. This is Allied, the new film by Robert Zemeckis. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. And, uh, I mean, Robert Zemeckis is just one of those uh, filmmakers who um, I hear his name and I know I'm instantly going to be going to see his film. Because no matter what, he is a filmmaker who knows how to, uh, talking about Quaron, who knows how to work with the camera and work in the world of cinema to tell really, really fascinating stories. I just love watching what he does um, when he's putting a movie together. They always fascinate me, and I just I almost feel like he can do no wrong. So um, he is uh, somebody I will definitely see. And this film is the story of intelligence officer Max Vatan, who in 1942, North Africa, encounters French resistance fighter Marianne Beausjour, on a deadly mission behind enemy lines, reunited in London, their relationship is threatened by the extreme pressures of the war. It looks like a very interesting movie. We've got Marion Cotillard playing uh, kind of, She's uh, looks like she might be a little bit of a spy or something. I'm not quite sure. It, but it they feels, fall, yeah, go ahead. Your, it your feels turn. spy-ish, yeah. but it feels, it feels like uh, there's some of that, and then they kind of fall in love. It looks like they might even have a baby. And uh, we shall see exactly how all of this goes. It is just a teaser. But uh, they look great. The period looks great. Everything about this looks great. It also has Lizzie Kaplan, who I love, Matthew Good. Um, it's Jared Harris pops up in here. I think it's going to be a really interesting cast. And uh, Zemeckis in World War II, um, I just feel like it's going to be a really fascinating story. Oh, and I didn't even say, it's written by Stephen Knight, who we've mentioned on the show a number of times as somebody who we really enjoy. Uh, we like him a lot, and uh, you know, uh, have you started watching Peaky Blinders? I haven't. Ugh, oh I man, need to. man. No. Anyhow, Stephen Knight is a, a writer on that one. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan. I'm very excited to see her in another film. As much as I enjoyed uh, Now You See Me Too, and you know, that was I, I sort of enjoyed it. Uh, I really enjoy her as an actress, and I think, uh, uh, you know, she's she's someone to watch. And uh, it'll be interesting to see her in some something that's probably not quite so uh, humorous. Uh, Matthew Good, too. Uh, I loved him in um, uh, Imitation Game and, uh, goodness, Watchmen. Uh, he's, I think he's match fantastic. Point. Yeah, Match Point, also Single fantastic. Yeah, so um, I, I'm very excited about this cast, and uh, it has a fantastic, a fantastic pedigree. And Brad Pitt. Yes, indeed. Handsome Brad. It uh, looks like this is going to be opening for Thanksgiving here in the U.S., November 23rd. And it's going to be spreading from the 23rd to December 1st around the world. My trailer, Andy, uh, I'm going to tell you, I almost did Hidden Figures, uh, which looks like a 
uh, it looks like a very sweet film. I saw this on the, it was just the Olympic trailer and uh, for Hidden Figures came out. This, I'm not going to do that movie though. This is great. You should go watch that trailer, but that's not the trailer I'm going to do because I then stumbled on the trailer for The Good Neighbor. Oh dear. James Caan <laughs> is such a scary man. He yes. is a scary man just walking down the street, but you put him in a scary movie uh, and it gets so much better. He is, uh, we've got a pair of high school kids uh, played by Keir Gilchrist and Logan Miller who try to uh, trick their neighbor with cameras and, and uh, robotic arms and things. They, they kid his house, this old man's house, so that they can try and trick him and, uh, that, and make him think that it's haunted, this house. And it uh, turns out... It's James Kahn, and they should have looked at his IMDb page and <laughs> before they did this. They are idiots. Uh, the film, it, it comes to us courtesy of a director, Kas- Kasra Farahani, uh, who is, uh, this is a first-time feature director for Kasra Farahani, who has a long list of credits in the art department, art director on films such as Star Trek, Into Darkness, Men in Black 3, Thor, uh, so lots of uh, uh, art direction experience taking it to uh, the director's chair. It's written by Mark Bianculli and Jeff Richard, uh, who, as far as I can tell, have no feature film credits to their name. So this should be an interesting one uh, with some first timers uh, bringing us a scary looking film. What would you think? I loved this trailer. I knew this you just, would. <laughs> it looked so exciting. This is just the sort of it reminded me of that trailer that I uh, I pulled um a few weeks ago um what was it uh, don't don't breathe that's the one with the, with the kids who break into the house and for, oh, with the blind man there but it turns out that there's a lot more going on here this has that same vibe where you've got the these kids who do something stupid in this old guy's house and now he's after them and uh, I think that it popped up in the trailer said, uh, you know, it's a rear window for the surveillance age. Alfred Hitchcock would be proud, which uh, really um, uh, kind of piqued my interest. I, I believe they said something similar when that Shia LaBeouf uh, movie came out where he was uh, holed up at his house and uh, thought his neighbor was uh, up to no good, which I don't think quite held up to Hitchcock levels, but it was still fun. This looks like it's got a much more intense level of creepiness. and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing this and seeing how how it all comes together. The only uh, the only release date I've got besides its uh, already premiered status at South by Southwest is September 16th in the USA. So uh, be on the lookout for the good neighbor in your part of the world. Let us know what you think. Excellent. You know, the only the only thing more terrifying than blindness, Andy, is is being the only one who can see. Nothing. To be honest with you, I've never experienced anything like this before. I just wanted to get your take on the bizarre case I saw today. What's the matter? I can't see. Somehow that patient infected me. That's impossible. Nobody goes blind like that. Morning, Minister. Some strange calls this morning. Coming security at 8 ready? I'm going to have to ask her to come with us. May I have those files, please? My fellow citizens, like so many of you, I have gone blind. We're in a state of crisis. They're going to be here any minute. The decision to quarantine all those infected was not taken without careful consideration. Step down, ma'am. You're not blind. This vehicle is for the infected. No, you'll have to take me. Fine, have it your way.
Blindness, Andy, 2008. Now, we like this, Fernando Morelis. Uh, he is, uh, we, we did City of God on the show. We both, yes. we both quite liked that film. Yes, and I, uh, he did Constant Gardener, which I like quite a bit. We did like Constant Gardener. We liked that, too. Uh, and so here we are, coming to blindness with our, dare I say it, eyes wide open. Oh, wow. Now, you had already seen, you had, <laughs> shut it, you'd already seen blindness, didn't you? I have. You have. Yes, I had seen this because because uh, I liked City of God. You still wanted it to be in this series. That's uh, that's good. I yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I'm the weird one. I, okay, so the story of, of blindness. The, this is a city that is. It is a nameless city, a generic city that is um, that is ravaged by a some sort of mysterious plague that causes instantaneous blindness. Uh, to its inhabitants, and the blindness is white. It is called like the the white blindness, right? The white Every, sickness. The white sickness. Everybody goes blind except for one person, and that is Julianne Moore. Uh, so if you're caught in uh, in an epidemic like this, find Julianne. Everybody go to her house because she's the one. <laughs> she's she's the one, and it, it it you know it makes it sound like this actually spreads worldwide it sounds like the whole thing goes everywhere yeah that's my understanding planes fall from the sky crash into one another yeah all that sort of stuff yeah right everybody is eaten by dogs yeah, as a that's result the danger yeah, that that's is the, the danger, danger. <laughs> the film is based on the book by the same name by jose saramago uh, and, and it actually won the the uh, nobel prize for literature that year uh this is uh, it's a pretty powerful story um What's your what's your sense of the adaptation to screen? Is it this seems like a pretty divisive film? It's it's a very divisive film. In fact, I think it's divisive, but I think most people seem to not like it. <laughs> divisive leaning negative. Uh, yes, I think. But there are people who uh, who uh, love the film. Well, and obviously people who love the book. I mean, the book is very beloved. Um, it's uh, I I never read it. I haven't read anything of his. Um, I uh, so I'm curious about it, but I do. It did sound like it. It is very kind of sparse, um, kind of like the way that this film ended up feeling. Um, so much so that the author, when he saw the film, said that um, you know he said he he was in tears. He felt like he was um, he. It, it brought him back to when he finished the book. It was it, it felt exactly the same to him, which I think speaks um, well of the filmmakers and their vision to actually bring this book to the screen so effectively. Um, and I think some people really clicked with it. Uh, there are some critics who put it on their, you know, top 10 of the year lists and all of that. But I think most people seem to not click with it. Um, definitely a handful of critics really didn't like it. And definitely the audiences didn't uh, didn't seem to care for it too much. So it's, it's interesting because I, I think the people who really click with it really click with it. Um, and the people who don't just really just hate it. It makes me want to read the book uh, a, a little bit. I'm pro- I'm going to tell you, I'm probably not going to read the book after seeing <laughs> the movie, but a little bit I want to do that. Uh, because I think, I, I did not click with the movie. I, I, spoiler alert, I'm not crazy about it. I probably will not watch the movie again. But I don't think I didn't like it for the same reason that a lot of people didn't like it. The film goes dark really, really fast. And the whole idea about the film, that that as soon as you get this disease, the entire population gets this disease, they turn into sociopathic maniacs and, and just completely fall apart, uh, I, I think does a great discredit um, to 
to the challenges that come with, well, first of all, uh, blindness, I think that I come to this film being wildly more optimistic about humanity. And the film does not do a good job, a satisfactory job, of helping me believe that I should think otherwise. And I'm calling this, Andy, I'm trying to to fashion uh, an axiom, and I'm calling it the next real reality paradox, Andy. What do you think (laughs) about that? It sounds good, right? I like it. <laughs> you don't I like even need to know what it means. It. We can put it in our uh, in our lexicography. We should put it exactly there because nobody ever looks at it, and that's probably where this exactly. belongs. The whole idea, <laughs> is, the whole idea, is that the film starts off with a promise, right? The film makes a promise that I'm going to have to believe something. It doesn't matter if I'm looking at a fantasy. It doesn't matter if it's science fiction. It doesn't matter if it's straight drama. It doesn't matter if it's horror, whatever. They're making a promise with this universe, and they have to deliver on the universe at in doses that will cement my belief in it throughout the course of the film so that by the time we get to the end of the film when i reach the climax of the film i am able to go back and piece together how i feel about this world that they've created how i feel about the rules that they've set up and how i feel about the people who inhabit this world that i am i have an affinity to them in such a way that i believe my experience was legitimate whether i am a jedi knight or whether I am a blind sociopath in a haunted house, or whether I am, um, you know, I I don't know. You know what I'm saying? And this film fails so many times on that front because I think they try to jam too much into this movie too fast, and their opinion of humanity is so dour in, in allegory that I'm never able to quite catch up. And as soon as I start slapping my forehead... And thinking, God, these people are so stupid. No one would do that. They haven't made a case for how we would fall apart like this. They haven't made their case. They lose me. I'm all for watching gross movies. I'm all for watching these kinds of things. They did not make a satisfactory case in the court of entertainment that I am I, that I was able to to sign on to. Well, I think that's interesting. I I think um, I can see what you're saying. Um, I for me, I guess I felt like the case worked. Um, maybe I just have more of a pessimistic view of people. <laughs> <laughs> but I I could see how if everybody went blind at once, how people it would be you know you're taking away a sense of everybody. Nobody really has time to be trained on this. I mean, I I appreciate that um, that kind of was at the American Association for the Blind or, or one of those groups really, really hated this film and uh, they were trying to um, promote people to not see it and were just completely against it. And um, I thought that was really interesting um, that that happened. Um, but um, uh, because they were really afraid that people were going to have this uh, this negative reaction to blind people, and right. it was going to be detrimental to people's opinions of blind people. This is the National Federation of the Blind. Thank uh, you. Yes. Yeah. Um, I for me, that's I, I had no connection between blind people in the real world and the people who go blind in this film because it's such a difference in the people themselves. This is like a mass blind epidemic where everybody all of a sudden goes blind. Everybody has a a complete um, sense taken away from them, 
and now has to figure out how to rely with nobody else to really kind of train them how. And so everybody's really figuring it out from the ground up. I thought it worked. For me, I, I kind of bought into it. I bought into kind of the messiness and, and the, the struggle that everybody had with it. And um, the way that people went about um, kind of uh, piecing this together as best they could. Um, uh, so for me, I bought into the world. I definitely find it a, a dark film, a hard film to watch, a hard film to get into. It certainly isn't a film. I remember watching it the first time going, oh, that was kind of a, a bit of a, a dour film. Um, this time I, I found myself enjoying it a little more. Um, I still don't think it's something that I would run out and uh, watch again after this. Um, uh, so, so you know, it, yeah. in that sense, I feel like I got more out of it this time, but I still don't think I would um, run back and and jump in. Well, I okay, two points. One uh, on this uh, the mass blindness and having it be something that is experienced by by people who are seeing and suddenly they are not. The problem that I have with that entire argument is that a central character in the film was blind all along and he is one of the worst people in the film and uh, the accountant character. He was already blind and he is a role model for sociopathy. So yeah, but, but that we have doesn't a great, hold water. Well, but we have a great quote about that in the film that I thought uh, sold that and I didn't need anything else. Um, to say, oh, well, he's representing all blind people either, you know, because you've got that great line. He's blind. That's all. It doesn't make him good or bad. That just makes him blind. And now he's blind with a purpose. So, you know, it's, I yeah, didn't have any I, I that. hear that. That's like I saying, that. why, why does every blind person depicted have to be a good person? No, they, and they certainly don't. But, and, and I, it just makes me think, okay, I, I, we, we have this movie. I can see why. Um, people in the blind community who didn't like this film really didn't like this film because it's not just about um, mass sightlessness, right? It, when you put a character like that in the film, it doesn't matter what the script says. It's what the character represents to the film. It's what he symbolizes, and he doesn't symbolize good stuff. Uh, and so that that's my only, my only point. Well, to um, that end, I will just say, and it's probably um, maybe a, a little confusion on the part of the filmmakers, I actually thought the entire time that Danny Glover's character was also blind the entire time. Yeah, I, <laughs> so. I actually I I heard you say that. I did not uh, I did not see that myself. I thought he was, but maybe you're right. Um, and and so you're saying that they were trying to balance the table. Well, that, yeah, I mean, <laughs> don't like, worry. We know there's right, a bad blind got... blind guy, but there's also a good blind guy <laughs> with an eye patch. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fair. Uh, I, you know, to your point about the NFB not liking this, I, I really don't think they have anything to worry about. This film wasn't that good to make an impact on our opinion of blind people. Uh, so really, we're okay. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how this thing turned from a book to a movie? Because I think it's an awesome story. Yeah, I mean, he had had people um, uh, trying to get the rights from him for actually a number of his books, uh, but he was always kind of leery of selling the rights because he didn't want people to change the stories and 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 uh, modify things. He liked his stories and he wanted them to be what they were. He didn't want them to be, um, you know, 
totally destroyed by Hollywood, as people tend to do. Um, this story, it sounds like a number of people actually had expressed interest in it, including, I think it was Whoopi Goldberg, um, and uh, of course, Morales and uh, Gael Garcia Bernal, actually, interestingly. Um, he had uh, refused to sell the rights to all of those people. Um at, at uh, various points. And uh, finally, Don McKellar, who wrote the script, he's Canadian, and uh, producer Niv Fitchman actually went to visit Saramago in the Canary Islands where he lives. And um, he said that he'll talk to them, but only if they do not discuss money. He did not want to have any conversations about that, um, just about kind of what they were thinking of doing. And so McKellar kind of talked about how he thought he would work on the story and what the focus would be and all that. And uh, and somehow they managed to convince Saramago to sell them the rights. But Saramago had a few uh, conditions that had to be met. And the conditions were that uh, the country had to be unrecognizable, uh, not set in a specific city that people would say, oh, that's such and such a place. It had to be kind of a, a, a no-name city. And that the dog in the novel, the Dog of Tears, should be a big dog. And that's apparently the things that he was concerned about. Those were his concerns from his villain's lair in the Canary Islands. <laughs> they right. had to take a flying car that actually docked with a boat that turned into a submarine. It's uh, it's one way to kind of uh, go about it. And interestingly, shortly after this, I guess things must have changed for him because then he uh, let some people adapt it to be on stage and... And then uh, just a few years after the movie, he let somebody adapt it into an opera. So he, I guess he ended up kind of opening up to the idea of adaptations. Yeah, I guess so. And he liked the way this turned out, as you already said. It, uh, it, it really connected with him. So, so be it. Uh, what did you think of the screenplay itself, Don McKellar? Now, we know Don McKellar from, uh, he's, he's an actor, director, writer, a multi-talented uh, uh, performer. Uh, what do you think of the script? He's an interesting guy. Um, I, as far as writing, I don't think I've seen much of his stuff. Thirty-two short films about Glenn Gould, um, the Red Violin, and this. I think are the only things I've seen. Um, I, I think the adaptation works. I mean, I, I'm not uh, without comparing it to the book. I mean, I know that. In the book, we also have um, characters that don't have names. They're all called by their description. Another way to kind of strip their identity and kind of create this this uh, disconnect from everybody, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I I felt like he he did a pretty good job. There were elements that I felt could have um, worked better, um, but on the whole, I mean, I didn't personally have a huge issue with the script itself. I I think I I don't know I, I don't know how much of this to attribute to the to the book, uh, but when you have right, scenes, exactly. you, you know, when you have scenes that are uh, like uh, you know we've we've got uh, we're in the, all of the people who are blind get quarantined in a, a abandoned sanatorium because we would do that I guess as humanity uh, they all get put in this just absolutely filthy place with no. Uh, there's no care. There's no nothing. Just soldiers and walls around it, and they all have guns. And we have scenes like this. So we've got a sick man, somebody who's, who hurt, has hurt his leg. It's actually uh, Don McKellar, who's a character in the film. Uh, he's hurt himself, and our protagonist is screaming, 
uh, I've got a sick man here to some guards. And the guards say, if you don't stand back, I'm going to shoot you. Right? And this, this happens repeatedly. The guards simply simply respond with that brick wall attitude. And this goes back to what I mean with the, the next real reality paradox. Mm-hmm. They have not set up me to believe that that any rational military force would have it would have reacted that way. You cannot like rationalize idiocy for narrative. Uh, or, or I should say, you can only rationalize idiocy for narrative so far. And this is this film has a lot of that. It has a lot of those kinds of moments that are just ridiculous. One of the central points of the film uh, that people have uh, complaints with is that our main character, Julianne Moore's character, uh, does not respond. She is a person in an environment who has a superpower, right? She can see where when everyone around her cannot and they start to violate one another in horrible ways and she takes no action apart from doing her best for a little while to keep it clean and to take care of the people immediately around her but as those people start to get pushed and poked she takes no action and i find that wholly unbelievable again it they they didn't set that up. And watching an, an interview with Julianne Moore, she tries to to rationalize this, saying, "Oh yeah, the character she's selfish. She's she's selfish. She she's she's not a, a she's not an American cinema superhero like we've all come to expect. She you know she's doing just for her, which absolutely fails in the narrative of the film because doing just for her in this case is to stop mass group rape. It is to stop stealing food. It is to do these things that you are empowered to do, and she does not do it. I find that incredibly difficult to watch, and that's why this the whole middle section of the film is really tough. I can see where you're coming from, and uh, th- I certainly have some issues in that stretch also, uh, some areas that, uh, that frustrate me and that, uh, you know, that are kind of I, I question the the logic and everything um i i don't it, it doesn't completely bother me but i can definitely see what you're saying with that and elements like you know it takes that other woman to finally uh the blind a, a blind woman to get the bright idea to go set a fire over in ward one to kind yeah. of burn them uh, burn all those guys down um and, but it seems like you know that's something that uh, perhaps uh, Julianne Moore's character should have done. She could see. She could easily have gone over there and done that. And and uh, if that's the sort of thing that she did in the film, and I guess that's what the filmmakers are saying, the storytellers are saying. You know, she's not a hero. She's not the sort of person who's going to do that. Um, and maybe that's why audiences didn't connect with it. You know, it's it's one of those things where if she had done that, and if she was the one who kind of stepped up. It would have made it uh, stronger, right? Yeah, but Um, also not because of an American cinema gestalt, because of a rational situational awareness of the scene. Like, this is a person who I just believe that if you put them in this Lord of the Flies environment, that she's going to to be forced to step up sooner than she stepped up. And, and yeah. that, I think, is a central failing of her character and something they just did not build a good case against. I can see, I, I totally can see what you're saying. I guess for me, I bought into her character more and I bought into the, the, uh, the, the, 
internal challenge she had with actually making the change and doing anything. Um, but uh, that being said, I think it is in, in story context, looking at it from the outside, I think it is relatively weak. So um, so I, I would say that you probably win this one. <laughs> okay. All right. Points are on the wall, <laughs> written in poop, just like blindness. <laughs> Um, so, so anyway, this is, we're, we're talking about the script and, and this is really, I, again, I don't know to, whether to ascribe these challenges to the script or to the book. I, this is what makes me think I, I likely would not like the book all that much because it just, I, it didn't read as sound allegory to me. It just, it was just sort of pushing this relentless, um, disgust and pain without justification. So that's, that's my comment on the script. Uh, the direction though um, what do we what do we think of how Fernando uh, handled the uh, the screen? I have not seen much of his work. I think it's this City of God and uh, Constant Gardner. I think and, that may and, be and it. the opening ceremonies to the Rio <laughs> Olympics. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I did check that off my list. Um, no, it's it's interesting. I think he's a really interesting director. He's got he's got a strong style, and I really like what he does. Here, he definitely exhibits the style. I think he came up with a really interesting style um, as to how to tell this story. Um, it, but again, it's it's a really tricky story, and obviously it's not one that clicked with people. It didn't, uh, you know, the way that he chose to tell the story, again, I think a lot of that does fall on the script and the original source material. But as the director, it also really falls on his shoulders as how he's going to to reshape it as he makes it. Um, obviously, he had issues with the rape scene because people were walking out when they were doing test screenings, and he had to recut that. Um, there were um, uh, it was just kind of a different difficult story to tell. I I think for me, it's an interesting um, case in in kind of style over substance, and I think there's a lot of great style here. I feel like he could have found a way to build the substance a little better to make it something that even with all the the difficult things to have to watch that we could have clicked with it a little better. I do too. Uh I I feel like you know we're going to get into a little bit of the camera but but some of the visual treatment I really really liked, you know. I I actually think that they that he did some had made some wonderful choices around how to depict white sickness on screen uh, particularly in the first person uh first person shooter cam <laughs> you know <laughs> and you have people looking at their hands and reaching out i actually really thought that was neat you know really um you know just cranking up the game you know and just opening up opening up the camera it just i, I it burned your eyes and and i i actually found that uh challenging to watch but i really liked it uh what i didn't like was they it felt like they they increasingly shot off angle like off subject so you know we're as it, when we're having a scene between two of the blind characters in the ward we might be looking at the top of his head and a hand but not the <laughs> subject and that felt like such a dumb gimmick to me it felt so stupid uh, that it, it would work. It would have worked in any other film, but this is a film about blindness. And when you have a film where all we're thinking about is a thing that we can't see, and then you you put the camera off center, off focus, off intention, it feels like a gimmick. It feels like a gag. 
Did you? Uh, you didn't. You don't share that. No, I mean, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was overdone to the point where it felt like a gag. I liked the way that it it kind of came and went. Um, it it wasn't always there, but it definitely had its moments, and it was blended. I felt with some of the other um, shots uh, that where you know you'd have a kind of an empty frame, and then a character kind of moves through a corner of it or something like that. Uh, some interesting choices in the way that they shot it. I didn't have any issues um, with uh, the gimmickiness of it. I, I thought it was actually quite effective and I liked it. I, I kept making notes about how how much I was enjoying watching the way that he chose to show this. That's fascinating because there, there are other films that have, have shot similar to that, even recent films. You know, we just did the, uh, JJ and Steve did the trailer rewind on Comet, uh, which has some, some similar kind of framing. Um, and not not quite so obviously out of frame, but just not quite right. And that works really well. That works extremely well. I, I wonder if if it had been a film full of characters where a central theme of the narrative was that they are blind, and then you start shooting, you know, out of frame, if if that would have worked as well. That that's where it didn't work for me. It just it just felt gimmicky. In in an area and, and I, I generally trust Fernando Morales de Morales so deeply when it comes to these things. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think that he had a really strong sense of uh, his camera in City of God and Constant Gardener. Right. Um, both of those, I really enjoyed the way he uh, let the stories unfold uh, on screen. And he worked, um, did a great job playing with the actors and the framing and everything. Just really strong um, presence felt. And um, and I felt it worked here. But again, this is a different type of storytelling. This is definitely much more of kind of a almost a fantastical allegory type of storytelling that he's doing here. Very different from City of God, which is just incredibly kinetic. And it had just so much stuff going on in that film. And then Constant Gardner, which is a, you know, it's a Jean Le Carré uh, kind of a mystery thriller. So, it, you know, between those two um He's got a lot of uh, genre conventions that he can go to. Here, it's it is a, a very different type of storytelling, and so I think he applied a lot of his style to it, which I guess I liked. But I can see why um, you wouldn't necessarily like it. It it can seem gimmicky, and I have a feeling people who generally don't connect with the story, it's probably one of those things they're going to notice a lot quicker. That the camera is, uh, you know, playing these little games uh, and be somebody who's not going to be uh, clicking with it so much. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. Let's talk about first shot, last shot. Speaking of of camera, yeah, interesting. The first shot, um, it's it's interesting because the first shots are all so quick, and it's really just a montage of close ups and extreme close ups of vehicles and traffic we've got the very first shot is a close-up of a car as it passes by and then we cut to an extreme close-up of the lens in a red light and then more cars and more traffic lights and we got a lot of this just kinetic motion and energy as all this stuff is getting cut back and forth and then we're slowly kind of the shots are slowly getting wider as we finally kind of back up enough to see that we're you know we've got this traffic situation on this busy road and we've got this driver who um, all of a sudden he's in his car and he can't see anymore so right out of the gate we're presented with an incredibly busy kinetic world um, that we're currently living in and uh, full of busy, busy people all running their own way and this guy with the blindness. And the very last shot 
um, we see Julianne Moore looking uh, out of her house. She's looking up and we see, then it cuts to an just amazing screen of white, kind of this soft, fluffy white. And then we realize that it's clouds as the camera tilts down and uh, it reveals a city skyline. Everything is much more peaceful and tranquil and uh, it, it has uh, definitely more um, serenity to it throughout. So it's that's the first and last shot. You know, it's I think the the first and last shot pairing visually is is one that really strikes me as a, a representation of the whole film. Uh, the opening sequence is is a great deal of pain, which is the first thing we see when he loses his sight. Uh, you know, the first blind man loses his sight. It's a very painful experience to watch him do that, and to watch you know the the entire world around him has to stop. But but what we see, the very first thing we see, is also a visually painful experience. It is hyper bright. Uh, lights, right? These lights that are huge, they fill the screen and they kind of hurt. Uh, and and the last scene, it's like we resolve to something that is much more sort of visually easy to look at. And I, I think ends weirdly optimistically for me. And I know that was a point I wanted to talk about with you was how these things, this pairing and this overall narrative ends for you. Is it is it optimistic or pessimistic? I felt optimism. Um, it, you know, there's definitely, um, it, it's almost like people have had to shift their perspective. And initially, everybody's just running around doing their thing, living their own lives. But then because of this whole thing, people have had to kind of shift. And now they're finally, at least her group, this new family that she's created, they are finally in a place of peace. You know, this this blindness, this whole situation with this blindness has passed. Now they are in a place where they can kind of calm down again and and basically be, uh, it's almost like a rebirth. You know, we had this great big rain right before it. So it just, it fits where it's almost like this, this cleansing these people have gone through and now they can uh, take a deep breath and start over. Yeah, I think so too. And I, you know, that was one of the comments in the book was that the book ended much more pessimistically, even on the same sequence. But it just felt like much like there was this awareness that now we've been reborn and and sight begins to return. And what have we wrought? You know, we've destroyed civilization. And and you know, this is what happens. This is why we can't have nice things, is because we're all terrible people when we come up against any sort of struggle and strife. And in the film, I didn't get that feeling at all. It it was much more of a feeling of that last shot, of as you say. I mean, it was it was you know, finally a sense of, of we can stop for a minute, we can regroup, we can take a breath. It was, it was an, an, a giant exhale. Exactly. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I, I did too, actually. I, I really did. Um, the, the cast, we've already talked a little bit about um, uh, Julianne Moore. Yeah, she's the only one who didn't have to go through blindness training. Everybody else, uh, they had to uh, basically learn how to be blind. Um, Christian Duravort, I'm not quite sure how you say his name, um, but he was a um, he helped uh, Morales on uh, City of God training some of the uh, the non actor non actor actors so that they could uh, act on screen, and he kind of put everybody through blindness training so that they could really figure out how to do this, which I thought was interesting. Um, but yeah, Julianne Moore, I and mean, we already talked about her a little bit, but I, I, she's a really interesting actress. We talked about her last week in City of God. Um, definitely more screen time here. She is the lead. And, I, you know, I think she carries the film well. I know, um, despite what you think about this whole, this the way that she, um, 
her character is in the film. I really like the uh, the way that she plays the character. I enjoy watching her. I enjoy her interactions with all the other blind people, with the guards. I enjoy the way that she kind of becomes a savior, helping this little kind of family group that she's created at the end as they make their way out into the city. It's really, um, I don't know, I thought she just uh, really delivered. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that point, that if I get rid of the narrative problem that I have with the character, if I get rid of the way she was written or perceived or even intended to be, I know Julianne Moore can can carry a film. I mean, I enjoy watching her work, and I think she is a, a very talented actor. Um, and so, you know, I'm right with you. I really enjoy her um, her relationship with these folks and the way she becomes the archetype of kind of Mother Teresa, right? That savior character, I think, is rightly said, uh, and I, I think she's good. She is um, she is the the vessel of of the rather heavy handed um, you know symbolism. Is agnosia related to agnosticism? Uh, <laughs> uh, those kinds of lines are just I just hit my head against the wall. It's uh, those are tough. Uh, but there there are lines like that that I feel like those are the sorts of things that work in the book. Yes, my my hunch is that's a that's a novel line, right? It feels, it feels like, like a line such a of, novel yes. line. Yeah, I think that sort of stuff works in context of a book. And that's something with Don McKellar, as far as his adaptation, I felt like there were elements that he kept in the screenplay that might have been better off only in the book. Yeah, I think so too. So that was it. And although I do agree that, uh, you know, when she finally experiences blindness, like her, you you know, she finds this basement uh, warehouse of uh, underneath a grocery store that nobody else can find and it's pitch black there are no windows there's no light and she's struggling to find what she needs and then struggling to climb out of it and kind of you know get the food past all of the 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 people who are who have gone blind and have gone you know feral hungry yeah, yeah. and starving it, right and so um you know she's that that whole sequence i think is is uh, I, I think she does very well and it's a, she really portrays that kind of helplessness um and literally helpless because even the people who would want to save her struggle to save her because they can't see either uh, i think that's a great sequence yeah, it's really interesting. And just as a little side note, as far as the effects go, the match that she was holding was actually a little light, and um, they would kind of flicker it up and down. And then in post, they actually went in and replaced it with an actual flame. So she's never actually holding a match, which I thought was interesting, because I thought as far as effects go, that worked really well. It- I had no idea. Oh, I, I, and I would say, you know, not to jump too much around, but the effects in this film were really surprising. Yeah. Um, the 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 way they had they they digitally destroyed this town uh, was magical. So uh, anyway, how about uh, Mark Ruffalo as Doctor? Uh, you know, he's Mark Ruffalo. I have a hard time. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a Mark Ruffalo performance that I don't like. I just think he's just so compelling to watch, and uh, I think he delivers here. Again, it's a, it's an interesting role for him because he is this guy who who is the fixer. He is the one who's kind of been the leader. He is a he is a doctor, an eye doctor, and here he is in a situation where he can't fix anybody, and he himself has gone blind, and he now has to rely on his wife. And I think there's a really great tension between the two of them, as he has to learn how to kind of accept that. 
And I really enjoy the scenes where he gets really frustrated with her and just doesn't want anything to do with her because, um, you know, he he's frustrated at himself. He can't do it anymore. I, I really like that. I, I am so torn on this performance uh, by Ruffalo. And again, similar to my, my problems with Julianne Moore's character, I have some major problems with the character of the Doctor. Like, w- how is it that this medical doctor, this ophthalmologist, this scientist is not an advocate to get the one person on the planet uh, someplace where they can actually do some work on and and discover why she has an immunity to this thing. How is that never a line that is uttered by him is in so insipid to me that it it pre- prevented me from from really finding a deep affinity to him. I I uh, and yet when he has the affair, I found that actually to be a, a really compelling bit of weakness. Um, you know that was that was believable uh, to me when he finally kind of broke down and and you know had the affair with um the the woman in dark glasses um yeah which i i i really agree i i love that scene between the two of them but again you're going back to kind of the script versus mark ruffalo's performance i think his performance is great and i agree that is one element of the script that is very frustrating why has nobody said hey or, you know, at the beginning, I mean, I know she kind of sneaks along with him because she doesn't want to be separated from her husband. I th- actually think that's a really kind of interesting thing that you don't see too often. Um, so I actually liked that quite a bit. But um, and, and once again, we have military people who can see that she can see and they say, whatever. Yeah, right. Right. That's that's <laughs> yeah. a stupid thing. That is a stupid thing. Well, yeah, it's, it's a stupid know. thing. Say it. You want to say it. It, do- it didn't bug me. It really didn't bug me. <laughs> all right all right so in terms of mark ruffalo's performance you know i'm coming off of of not liking him in spotlight like i I, so i i can't say that i i am universally thrilled with mark ruffalo's performance uh uh what was the one he he just did that i i did like so much that was the uh infinitely 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 polar bear bear. so there there's something to see him in this one is is not so much i for for me i felt like a, a very kind of um uh, I don't know, understated to the point of being ineffective to me uh, throughout, uh, with with the exception of spots that I thought were very, very strong. Danny Glover is here. Story time for Danny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Danny Glover is always an interesting actor. I just loved that he wore an eye patch. I thought that was... Uh... That was a great touch because it just, I don't know, I felt like Danny Glover. If he wore an eye patch in more movies, I would probably like him in more movies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Andy, on this we firmly agree. I wanted more than anything else to read somewhere that wearing an eye patch was a condition of him taking the role. <laughs> that is very funny. It is very funny. Maybe you'll like him in his upcoming 2017 film, Death Race 4. I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Really? Yeah. Death Race yeah. 4. Yeah. That's hey, were there three before? I'm going to say yes, but <laughs> I didn't see them. So. Oh, that is so funny. Uh, how about uh, Gail Garcia Bernal as bartender slash king of Ward 3? He is an interesting character. He is an interesting character. I generally like him in films. Very interesting actor. Um, I guess in the book, he's actually a much more evil, malicious person. Um, here, uh, Morales chose to kind of make him a little more like a kid with a gun. 
and I I thought that was actually really interesting. He's he's a little more of a, a goofball. He still is uh, equally terrifying, but um, I I actually felt like the way that he uh, was portrayed here might might be a, even a little more dangerous than uh, than just an evil guy. Yeah, uh, certainly dangerous in the terms of being completely unpredictable. Um, yes, and uh, you know I I agree with that. Um, I. I I I found the character like ultimately does some really terrible things and becomes the leader of some really terrible uh, parts of the human psyche uh, that he taps into um, in in the members the residents of Ward Three and I think the choice for me and and on this I you know I don't have a terribly strong position but I think the choice to make him more unpredictable and more like a kid and less of a a leader with any strength made me lack confidence that so many people would follow him to do such terrible things. Yeah. Uh, Like he didn't have, he didn't portray the charisma. He, he was just spastic. And, uh, and I, I, I just wasn't convinced that he was, he would be able to pull that off. Uh, but but again, I like him so much as a performer that he was interesting to watch, and I I was surprised actually uh, at the transition when they when you know she finally takes action and and goes to um, goes to kill him, uh, stab him with some surgical shears uh, that he was actually killed off so early, and that there was a lot more movie after that. That actually surprised me. It's an interesting point that uh, if everybody in Ward 3, or yeah, Ward 3 was kind of along the same lines, um, why were there, why were they following him? Why weren't there more scuffles to get that gun like yeah. when he was sleeping? I, I can't imagine the accountant is the only one uh, keeping him safe. I mean, it seems like he could be uh, taken pretty easily and another evil person could have uh, right uh, could have jumped in. Well, I, I'll tell you if you if you want to see a different side of Gail Garcia Bernal, uh, go check out um, what is it? it's the Amazon uh, uh, Mozart in the Jungle. Oh yeah, uh, he's this is a very different Bernal. Let's just say that it's a delightful show, and you should definitely check it out. Cool. You heard it here a second. I sure did. Uh, Maury Chaikin, we've already talked a little bit about him. He plays the accountant. This is the one who uh, was blind all along, and he is, he's, talk about unpredictable and mean. He's mean, yeah, but it's interesting because he ends up having kind of a, uh, when they bring all the women over to uh, to rape them, um, he's the gentle one. And I don't know, I guess I, I don't know if I was surprised by that or or... Uh, expecting it but it was interesting and then the fact that uh, he kind of is horrified to learn that somebody uh, that one of these women was killed and uh, it's just interesting the things that blind people uh, don't end up um, noticing and I thought that was an interesting little nod Um, he's one of those actors though that I I am forever going to picture his moment in Dances with Wolves when he stands up and says to Kevin Costner I just pissed my pants, and nobody can do anything about it. <laughs> I will forever have that burned in my head, and I will never be able to see Maury Chaikin saying anything but that line. <laughs> that is great. That's such a strange thing Poor to Poor Maury Chaikin. To. I know. <laughs> Why that? I don't know, but that's what it is. Uh, he just did so good in that part, I yeah, guess. Yeah, he was so good. He really <laughs> buried himself in the part. Uh, what about the lovely Alice Braga? 
Um, she's nice. I, I liked seeing her again. Uh, we talked about her back in uh, Red Belt. Yes, love her. And and I really, I I don't know. I guess uh, she's not somebody that you see too often, but I enjoyed seeing her here. I thought she did fine. That's every every creative's uh, what they really look forward to seeing to hearing. You did fine. You did no, I, fine. <laughs> I liked I liked the actual sense that okay, here's this kind of um, uh, prostitute who because of this whole situation that she undergoes, ends up shifting a little bit and finding this maternal streak that I thought was kind of uh, touching as she ends up being the one who kind of takes this kid under her wing and kind of becomes the maternal figure for uh, for this boy as they uh, try to figure this whole thing out. I liked that. I thought it was nice. And I thought it was very touching the moment she had with, uh, with uh, Danny Glover. At the end, as oh, they I definitely of, as yes. their relationship, yeah, yeah, I I loved that moment, and I particularly love that moment. You know, they're having this conversation about, you know, she's she's saying, "I want you to tell me this thing that you that you're deep feeling," and he says, "I don't want to, I don't want to say with everybody else around, and everybody else is around, <laughs> but she says, no, no, don't worry about it, nobody else is around." Right, and he's and, like, "Is anybody here? Anybody here? Nobody <laughs> says anything." That's that is <laughs> so uncomfortable. I am so <laughs> uncomfortable. It was. It was great. Okay. Yeah. I would just love to, like, how do they approach the fact that they're there uh, yeah. after the fact? After they've oh, already no, screwed I just, this up. I just walked back in. Uh, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody go close the door. <laughs> uh, we've, oh, we talked about her also uh, in City of God. Obviously, she was the young An- Angelica in, mm. in that film, and she was also so delightful. But talk about a crazy, um, crazy path, you know, to do that movie, this movie, Elysium, Predators, I Am Legend. Uh, she's all over the place. Yes, she yeah. is. Yes, yes she, she is. is. Uh, we've already talked about Don McKellar. He was actually the thief. He was the uh, the first. Uh, the he was the second. I, I guess the second blind person. He he is the I guy so. who rescues the first blind person. Uh, sort of rescues in air quotes there. He helps him by driving him home and stealing his car. And it was so funny because I, I was watching this. I'm like, why is this guy being so nice? Uh, there's something really weird about him. Oh, because he's a thief. Oh, no, he's not a thief. Oh, no, he is a thief. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, right. See, he was... stole the car. And I thought, well, that's the last we saw of him. <laughs> this blind guy got his car stolen. Okay. And then he shows up in the house. Right. right, he shows up to help him up, and then starts scoping the place out. I thought that was actually brilliant. It was. Creepy. I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah, I, I, my only issue is is Don McKellar. I, I don't know. There's something about him on screen that doesn't quite uh, settle with me. But it was, it was okay. I mean, he was fine. It just um, maybe I would have liked it if it was somebody else. Uh, maybe if it was Sandra O. Oh, my God, mm-hmm. why didn't she get a bigger part in this film? <laughs> Sandra O. Oh is is of everybody in this film, and I I actually mean everybody. I adore Sandra O. Oh. I loved her in Sideways. I love her in Grey's Anatomy. Like she's in TV movies. I think she is fantastic. She is an incredibly charismatic, complex actor, and she should. She has like two lines in this movie, and it was so stupid. It, well, and the strange thing about it that I I don't know if it, I, I don't know if it surprised me based on how the the story was actually put together, but she actually has that news report where she's talking about I too have gone blind. Uh-huh. So I was half expecting them to bring her here. Yes, you know, it's like why why? Uh, but then I'm like, well, she's like the mayor or president or whatever she is. I guess she has her own little bunker, and they probably just lock her in her bunker. or something. Yeah, right. 
but by then it's like probably most people were going blind and it wasn't a, you know what are we going to do yeah civilization has fallen because right. of madness but what, exactly. whatever it was frustrating uh i you know those are the those are the big uh, uh characters that i wanted to talk about anybody else on your list Nope, that was it. All right, let's talk about Just cinematography. Except for the dog. I really, really <laughs> loved that dog. And I want... Not dog the dog like that him. was eating that guy? Not that dog. The other dog no. that didn't the eat that guy. The dog of tears. Okay. the dog of tears. The dog of not eating people. That was the dog <laughs> that we liked. Exactly. Uh, cinematography. Yeah, the Uruguayan DP Cesar Charlone uh-huh. uh, was the one who shot this film. And I thought it was interesting that they actually did end up going and filming part of it in Uruguay uh, so that he could uh, kind of be on his home turf. Well, that's very nice to do. I don't think they did it for that reason, but... (laughs) I'd like to say that for him. Right, for him. We're going to Uruguay. Yes, just for you. Just for you. Uh, It it was... Can you talk about the VistaVision camera? Uh, Sure. I I think it's interesting that they did film part of this with a VistaVision camera. It it might have been the whole thing. I I didn't know if the whole thing um, was made this way. But VistaVision basically is is a camera where it's a 35 millimeter camera, but instead of the frame itself uh, being uh, kind of running vertically through uh, through the lens, where you have the, uh, the frame itself runs from sprocket hole to sprocket hole uh, horizontally, uh, the VistaVision camera, the... Um, the the mag the film magazine runs is horizontal and so what that allows is you have a much bigger frame on the film because now the horizontal uh, shape of the frame runs um, with uh, it, it tilts it so basically it's the sprocket holes are now on the top and bottom of the frame and so it allows for a much bigger image to be captured on that uh, on that film and so you get a much cleaner image there's a, a better resolution not not nearly as much grain and so i think in a film that is um because the this film, whole idea of the blindness the yeah, film is still like the so i'm i'm envisioning right a 35 millimeter frame and the sprockets are on left and right and it's it's in uh you know it's landscape and what you're Correct. saying is now the VistaVision film is it using it's using its own film, right? Sure. Okay. Well, no, and, I mean it's it's 35 millimeter film. But 35 millimeter, but VistaVision. So the sprockets are now on top and bottom. Is that what you're saying? So no, this, like, the, no, the VistaVision. It, it's just the way that the film runs through the camera. So it's basically you're taking a regular mag and you're tilting it on its side. You can use the same f- film. You can use the same film. It's just now when it runs through the camera. Um, it's tilted now. So the sprockets are on the top and bottom. And so the top and the bottom of the frame, instead of a frame running, um, what would that be? If you, if you tilted it up, the, the sprockets, it's, it's going to be like uh, this image. I don't, I, I don't know the math, but it's probably like three times bigger. You're, you're getting an image that is so much bigger than what you're getting because now the frame is turned. You're, you're assuming that film frames are on the film before you shoot it. A film strip is just a blank right, strip of Of course, film. that's what I'm, you're right. That's the idiocy that I have, I have perpetrated here. You're right. It had, <laughs> this is undeveloped film right. that we're talking about. I can't have that conversation without uh, that bit of clarity. You're right. We haven't developed it. Yeah, I've been shooting digital a long time, Andy. Give me a break. <laughs> right. Film schmilm. <laughs> So, so it is, in fact, the same film. And in fact, Andy, you're getting a much larger frame, I think is what you're trying to say. 
That's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> what a doofus. Who let this guy on the show? <laughs> well, it's interesting because this is how a lot of IMAX films are shot. Yes, um, they are. Even though it's a 70 millimeter, this is much bigger. But VistaVision, it's the 35 miller, millimeter still, but it allows for a bigger image on the on the, um, on the fr- on the film itself. So you get a really clean, very fine grain print and in a film that involves so much white that needs uh you know the whole idea is this this very kind of clean white um you're you're able to get that uh in a much cleaner way so i think it's pretty interesting that they actually chose to go this route yes i now also think it's interesting Whoo, boy that was a bear man i you know what i (laughs) deeply appreciate you keeping up with me trucking along with me because i know that everyone else got this before i did so thanks everybody (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really good stuff this tech talk with andy and b <laughs> great podcasting <laughs> all right let's talk about uh, uh, uh anything else we want to talk about with the uh, cinematography well we already talked about like the misframing the overexposing overexposing going white things falling out of frame i also thought it was uh nice uh that they put a lot of things between the actors and the camera that were glass and that you had a lot of reflections of kind of those ghostly images of people in the reflections throughout, which just enhanced this whole idea of seeing and what's there and what's not. Um, I liked that quite a bit. So that was the only thing I was going to say. Production design. Oh, there was a lot of poop in this movie. Yeah, poop and blood Trashy. and things you don't want to step on. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, Julianne Moore should have been out there with a mop every day cleaning up after these people because oh. that was just disgusting. Of course, the mop, the water itself was all brown anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if they're trapped in this building, she's the one who's going to explore the entire building, know what is where, where everything is, you know, how they get into the air ducts, how they get onto the roof. Like, it seems like she's going to be the person who can do all of that. Yeah, right? she did none of that. No, I know. And instead, she just wanders around and doesn't do anything about poop on the floor. Oh, there's so much poop. And clothes. You notice there were a lot of naked people. Well, that's the joy of everybody being blind, is you don't have to wear clothes anymore. <laughs> I'd be the first to rip it all off. <laughs> Andy, these people didn't display the kind of glee that you're exhibiting now. <laughs> hey, if it's hot, what are you going to do? I, <laughs> Woo! I think that is. <laughs> Oh, man. Glad people put up through that whole tech talk because then they get to the nudity. That's right. <laughs> uh, They're the winners here. It was, it, yeah, it was. A, you know what's interesting? I do have to jump to visual effects because I think production design and visual effects go hand in hand in this film because so much of what they did to dirty up the city, to close the city, to remove traffic. I mean, they didn't get permission, I don't think, to shut Toronto down. Uh, judging by this little clips reel that I found of the before and after of the visual effects, um, there are a lot of sequences where they, you know, added people sleeping on the curb, added just, they, uh, here's a beautiful city street. They just made it trashy. Uh, they, you know, the hallways in the in the ward, yeah, there she is walking down the hallway, and it looks like there are some papers on the floor. But when they're done with the effects plate, oh my goodness, there's poop everywhere. There's, there's bodies. There's, it's, they've, they've made it nasty. So uh, I, I think that... That for me is a a major success of the film because I didn't uh, the the number of effect shots in this film has to be much higher than one would normally anticipate. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, and I, I don't think they actually shot any of it on the streets of Toronto, um, like you had said. 
Uh, no, I, I, I honestly, I didn't. I didn't know for what I was speaking. I but it, where where did they do the outside at the end? Was that in Uruguay or that in was Canada? in Uruguay in or Montevideo? In, okay, uh, it, yeah, they they. I guess there is a district in the city that is largely closed down and and empty, and so they they had almost just a the run of the place, and they were able to like they had two whole blocks and they just trashed it. They painted everything to make it look like a mess. Uh, they just built this whole world, and I, I think it's just an amazing uh, set piece, that whole last bit when they're walking through the city. Everything feels so authentic. They did, um, it was filmed in Montevideo, but they did actually, I believe for one shot, they took a, um, a plate of a shot of Toronto and put it in the background. So again, going back to uh, Saramago and his desire to kind of keep this city uh, nameless, you know, the whole opening, all, this, all the city work that they filmed in the opening was all in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And then all the stage work was done up in Canada, and then all this ending stuff was done in Montevideo. And it really does create this sense of this place that you don't really know where you are. You can't quite get a grasp on it. And I really enjoyed that. I thought they did a great job with that. And I was just really impressed with the work that they did down in Uruguay with uh, how they made that look. Yeah, me too. It's, it is beautiful. Uh, throughout the the entire thing, I mean, beyond the just straight-up camera work, the, the production design, the final look of even the, the whatever you think of the narrative, the look of the sanatorium is is a success in the film. It, take no Absolutely. people in it. it. It looks great, and that's a combination of some great production design and fantastic and subtle visual effects. So uh, that was good stuff. Um, uh, music? Yeah, interesting music. Marco Antonio uh, Guimaraes, I think is how you say his name, um, as Wakti. Yeah, Um, I'm not sure where that comes. That's his performance name. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting, interesting music. Um, Sometimes I felt it worked. Sometimes it was really distracting. And I just felt it didn't enhance the scene. It was working opposite of what I felt the scene was trying to do. Um, that, uh, was interesting though. I enjoyed that what Marco did was he found really unique, interesting instruments. Um, he designed some of his own instruments to kind of make the sounds. All of that I found really interesting. A lot of the instruments that he chose to use were glass. Um, again, tying it into the image of what was on the screen. Um, very interesting. I just, for me, I wish that I felt that it worked more. There were times though that were really, really beautiful. Yeah, I I found that too, particularly in the last like 20 minutes of the film. It it is this sort of redemption sequence where they have that rebirth we talked about in the rain. It leads them, they they find the home, they they are are building a place in the world again. And the music goes from being really jarring and much more of a soundscape, in my view, earlier in the film to something that's just, you can tell these instruments that you're talking about this are being used in such a beautifully sort of lyrical way that I thought was, it, it was particularly surprising this is not a a score that i'm gonna listen to but i could pick a couple of tracks i think yeah right yeah the tracks that are that have that sense of uh, peace i think yeah. would be the ones that would be yeah. worth listening to the rest is it's very discordant right yeah uh how did this thing do around awards did it uh did, did it get any traction at all I don't think this thing did well enough for anybody to even remember it when <laughs> awards came around. Um, that's the unfortunate thing like this. I just don't think it ever found its uh, found its footing. And it just uh, it uh, kind of just always fumbled. So 
That is the sad lot of blindness, I guess. Well, uh, at least the book got a sequel, right? <laughs> yes, the book did get a sequel called Seeing, interestingly, <laughs> um, or I should say fittingly, that uh, he ended up writing in, um, gosh, how long ago was it? 2004. Uh, two- right, right. So nine years after the book came out. Uh, you haven't read that one either, I take it? Haven't read that one, and I uh, probably won't. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this film. I feel I've I've covered the story. <laughs> now. You did your time, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you already mentioned that it has not since been remade uh, in other media. Right, exactly a stage a stage version that began in two thousand seven, and then an opera in two thousand eleven. And I have to say, that seems like a really fitting way to tell this story. An opera. I wouldn't watch it because I hate opera, but. Opera has this this intense, emotional, often kind of tragic way of telling the the stories. I feel like opera might be a really interesting way to explore the story here. I'll see that. I, and and not... I, I actually don't hate opera. I actually, uh, I, I like opera, but I, I, I don't know who's in it. I mean, it, unless it's Andrea Bocelli, I can't imagine, I can't imagine it being. Uh... Well, you'd have to watch it in German. Oh, it's a German thing? Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, you know, a lot of operas are foreign. I don't know what most of them are saying. That's, you know, that's a really good point. I said that like I was really surprised. And I, <laughs> like, that's, honestly, that's because I was reading about Andrea Bocelli, <laughs> and I wasn't paying attention to you. Uh, and that made it, that's what made it funny. What? This is an opera in German? <laughs> I am shocked. <laughs> Since when did this start happening? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, how, let's talk about it. Let, give us the the bad news. How did it do with the numbers? Yeah, this film uh, opened October third, two thousand eight, after having premiered at Cannes, having a rough time there. It cost twenty five million to make this film, which in today's dollars is about twenty seven million. Couldn't find anything on Princeton advertising. Uh, can't imagine they spent much advertising it domestically. It only made it made just under three and a half million, and internationally just under seventeen million. Um, all told, that's a total gross of just over twenty million, adjusted um, just under twenty-two million. So in the end, it ended up losing an adjusted profit per finished minute of negative forty-two, almost forty-three thousand. Where does that put it at the bottom of the charts? It's uh, it's pretty low, although it's just above Red Belt, and sadly, it's just above Children of Men too. Oh, that is sad. But again, I think Children of Men is one of those films that has had such acclaim since then that I, I just couldn't find all the numbers for yeah. like the, the digital and, and, uh, and streaming and all that. I, I have a feeling that its numbers probably increased quite a bit because of that. Whereas this, I don't think there are that many people running out to see this these days. The, uh, you know, before we, we jump into ranking it, it does boast one of the coolest uh, bits of poster art uh, of Julianne Moore, certainly, uh, I, I think of of that I've seen. It, it's just really creepy. There is a great picture of her very close, looking up the clouds, like from the final sequence, and it's got fingers, other people's fingers, all over her face, like pulling her head back. You kind of get that sense that it's it's kind of a, a pastiche of her experience in the grocery store, um, and it, it's really haunting and and beautiful selection. I I am kind of also partial to the one where it is um, the the out of focus figure with a hand reaching out, and then blindness is written in yes. uh, in 
ever decreasing size uh, letters, just like a, an eye doctor's chart. Oh, totally. Yeah, that is another great one. Might be putting a uh, putting a, a too fine a point on <laughs> too it. Too fine a point, right? You know, as we've already discussed with this film, it doesn't bother me too much. Yeah. Well, right. And then the tagline on a lot of these posters is like, "Hope is blind, trust is blind." You know, really, faith is blind. <laughs> Again, somebody get a hammer. <laughs> anyway. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head on over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and search for blindness. This is not the documentary film Notes on Blindness, different film, but you should probably watch that one. I hear great, tremendously great things about that film. This is blindness, and I kind of feel like we're rolling the dice. I don't I I think we're gonna be doing a lot of rock, paper, scissors on this one. Well, yeah, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Because, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed this film certainly more than you did. Um, however, it's not something I'll be returning to. Oh, there often. we go. We might so have an we'll easy, easy run. Here we go. Yeah, we'll see. First up, Blindness or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I think it's safe to say, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I think it is. Next up, Blindness or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen? Boy, Munchausen for me. Take us right to the, to the back of the line. Eh? Munchausen for me, too. Blindness or Gone with the Wind? Oh, definitely Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Gone with the Wind. Blindness or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I would watch Indiana Jones before Blindness. I would, I would, uh, I would also, I would <laughs> say, I feel there is uh Is somebody a pulling out interest. your fingernails right now? <laughs> no, it's just, it pains me to have to vote for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because, man, is that movie dumb. Oh, it just makes me so sad that that's an Indiana Jones movie. Um, I want to pick blindness out of uh, out of rage at them for making that movie. Um, <laughs> but then you realize that the protest vote an, never works. <laughs> wow, getting all political now. <laughs> yeah, we'll do Crystal Skull. Blindness or apt pupil? I will say blindness here. Really? Yep. I, I yeah, I had so many problems with that. Yeah, we we definitely. Went to town on apt people. You know, what the hey-who, Andy? I'm going to give you blindness on this one. <laughs> what the hey-who, indeed. <laughs> blindness or alien resurrection? Oh, I'm alien resurrection. I uh, surprisingly am, too. <laughs> <laughs> blindness or Pritzy's honor? I will say Pritzy's honor. I will also say Pritzy's honor. Blindness or the edge? I will actually say blindness here. Oh, edge as much as i once liked it i had so many more problems with it i really did yeah i i just don't know i'm having trouble figuring out whether i want to go to the mat on it we're at the very uh, bottom what the of the hey who pete let's go with blindness well, all right andy what the hey who blindness uh, it it's, is it's only going to give it one extra spot so there you go <laughs> 249 right uh it's pretty close to the bottom it's pretty close it's uh it's within 10 from the bottom <laughs> Well, unfortunate for it that we've seen so many great movies. Yeah, I mean, it is it is an interesting film. I felt like I got some interesting things out of it. I also just felt like uh, I don't need to worry about this film again. So, What would it have been like if our series started with, like, Under the Cherry Moon, Rush, Blindness, and Pritzy's Honor? <laughs> like, how I do you even I begin to rank those <laughs> I think Pritzy's Honor Honor has a bad bad rap. I feel I feel like uh, I should rewatch that because I feel so bad that it's so low. Oh no, it's fine. 
Don't worry about it. Uh, okay. Don't worry about it. it. What's your letterboxed? You know, despite everything, I still gave this three stars. Oh, Andy. It's, I don't know. I Maybe uh, maybe two and a half now. This is a, this You're is. You're guilting me. You're guilting a half out of me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> this is a, for me, this is a one star film that I'm going to give a second star. No, a second half star. So one and a half stars. Uh, because what you have have reminded me of in the whole experience is that there is so much to appreciate visually in the film uh, that I, that's an extra half star. I really do appreciate most of the look of the film. I think it's it's worth noting the choices that they made there. It is there's a lot of it that's just plain beautiful. Okay, I I I, I think that sounds good. So it's that's still an not overall. A, yeah, it's not a good movie. It's. I, I think there's more to it than you're giving it, but you know, again, I I, you have I to feel admit, like I was not the complete naysayer that I know you expected me to be. No, you weren't. You weren't. I um I felt like I was actually going to walk in defending it a lot more than I did, and I was surprised I didn't defend it as much because I don't know. It's one of those movies I I feel was very interesting. I just I I don't find myself agreeing with any critic who would have put it on their top ten list. Oh yeah. Um, well, but, and here's the thing, Andy. This movie starts out with such incredible promise, don't you think? Like the opening of this film and the whole concept around spontaneous blindness is a terrific conceit. I would see that movie. The problem is the rest yeah. of this movie isn't that movie that I wanted. That was no, funny. they they didn't uh, get it to where it could have gone. But again, I don't think that's what uh, Saramago's book was really going after. I, you know, based on everything that I've read about his book, it was going to be much more of a uh, an allegorical sort of story, uh, talking about societal blindness and how people, um, just kind of the way that people operate. And I think, to that extent, this is a, a good movie, and I do enjoy watching it. Uh, that aspect of it, it's just. I do kind of uh, prefer a little more story. And I do think it would be a really interesting disease film for somebody to make one where you do have blindness. And I mean, I guess, uh, what was it? The Day of the Triffids kind of deals with that a little bit where you have uh, whatever it is that lands on the planet and makes everybody blind and all those, you know, alien seeds everywhere that uh, uh, that uh, people, uh, what are they trying to do? Eat everybody or something? Yeah, had me at alien seeds. I never saw it. <laughs> didn't either. Clearly, <laughs> you know, but that's a you know not to belabor this because I'm sure I will belabor it again later. But I believe I've I've mentioned something about the uh, the the next real uh, reality paradox. What's that? It's that thing I talked about in the first act of our show tonight. <laughs> yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, and and You're very so clever. we we um, this is the day of the Triffids. As soon as you say spontaneous blindness, I am made completely okay with it. If there are alien seeds, you don't need to go very far. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So here's the day of the Triffids. Maybe we should have included this in our disease series list. Um, this is actually the book uh, thing. But the day of the Triffids is a 1951 post-apocalyptic novel about a plague of blindness that befalls the entire world. World, allowing the rise of an aggressive species of plant that fits the paradox it's okay it is absurd but it sets its own reality such that it becomes believable in its own universe i'm okay with that <laughs> all right well now if we ever revisit a disease series again 
we'll have to include the day of the triffids. Well, that we were gonna we're gonna leave that uh, uh, for next week's discussion, which is the final <laughs> in our disease series. Yes, where do we go from yes. here? Yes, yes, we are ending this thing uh, with. Uh, it has been a full two month run. We are ending it finally with Steven uh, Soderbergh's Contagion, which uh, I'm I'm curious to revisit because I remember enjoying it. But it's not something I've been compelled to revisit. So now uh, will be my chance. I remember thinking it's a lousy comedy. <laughs> uh, before that, uh, just coming up this weekend, we've got uh, War Dogs, uh, the Todd Phillips uh, film with Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. And we're going to see that, and we're going to do a film board on it. So you can catch that uh, first thing next week. Yeah, so be on the lookout. Excellent. Yeah, that's it. i got to go to bed. Me too. My head has been hurting and oh, everything's turning white. I figure if I get some sleep, it'll all just go away. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I've got. I'm doing a five star. I feel like now it, you're. Like now you're. There you go. Do you know? You know why? Of course. I mean, it, it, this is a very interesting spread of reviews. Yes. Yes. Normally, it, it almost without fail, it almost always skews to five stars. Yeah. Yeah. People. <laughs> people genuinely are generally, I think, tilt up. But in this case, it is a pretty even spread. Uh, between all of the uh, all of the assorted stars, and I'm just gonna give a five star because I think it it's uh, you know he, tried, a lot he, of, a he lot tries of, uh, to negative. talk about teens. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, this was uh, from uh, Mr. Mark Alexandre on October 31st, 2009. Wow, why does this have such a low rating on IMDb, and why does so many people hate it? The only answer that I can come up with is that most of the people that hate it are teens and that don't know the meaning of plot hole. There's no plot hole in this movie. The fact that there's no explanation why people become blind is not a plot hole. It's just not an important detail. Saying that it's a plot hole is just like saying the fact that there's no explanation why people become zombies in Dawn of the Dead is a plot hole. It's not a plot hole. It's just not what the movie is about. It was intentionally not explained anyway. It's an awesome movie. It's not only entertaining, it's also sad, disturbing, powerful, and I could go on and on and on. I'm pretty sure that it's the only movie that made me go from sad to disturbed to happy and to sad again. Short review? I know, but I'm just not good at writing reviews. I just hope that it's at least slightly helpful. Scene. Wow. So ten. I'm ten not, out of ten. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that that defining the term plot hole in this review actually supports <laughs> his awareness of what plot holes are. Uh, we which don't is unfortunate. Question. We uh, don't question. <laughs> like much like blindness, just don't question. Well, I've got another five star by right. Pete Bogue, who says a very cool movie. This movie is probably one of those love it or hate it type movies. I don't know if I can even explain why I love this movie. I'm just fascinated by it. It haunts me. And every time I see it on cable, I watch it. The experience of being blind and quarantined immediately like that and then being ignored by the powers that be is a screwed up reality nowadays. 
The music is appealing to me too. I could go on and on, but I'll spare you. That's such a tease. <laughs> I I expected him to go on and on. Well, he must have read your review first instead of <laughs> maybe he really maybe on that's and on. it. I I should go on and. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.